Listeners, we would like to thank our supporters on Patreon. That is Nick, Justin, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Sam, Jory, Shelley, Tara, Rachel, Abby, Peter, the Reverend Langenstein, Annalise, and Ian. Thank you for your money. It helps make the show happen. It does make the show happen. Ian is now a, a Patreon subscriber, mm-hmm. which is kind of bananas since he's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's almost like, I don't know, it's like a conflict of interest, I would say. But that's fine. I, is I, it? I don't know. Maybe does he want the Patriot? Does he want the podcast to be successful or is he trying to sabotage us with his $20? You never know. He could be be controlling. I don't know. You never know. He did sign up for the level where he can suggest Patreon or not Patreon mini episode topics. So he might be trying to control the podcast. That's true. Yeah. It's, it's getting, it's getting crazy. The Coke (laughs) brothers are also Patreon subscribers. Bananas. It, and so bring if you, on next. I need that's right. Enron, surprising <laughs> enough. Um, they were they came back from the grave just for wait, wait a minute. Ron DeSantis? Oh, come oh, on right. now. Come on. I know, I know, I know. I did uh, that on purpose. Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> too soon. <laughs> if you would like to help make the show happen, you can join our supporters over at patreon.com slash WTHIAP. You can also get access to a patron-only podcast feed, including bonus content. I just uh, almost finished listening to Joe and our Joe and my review of Pleasantville. That's good listening mm-hmm. content. It holds um, up. It holds up. It hold, we just did it a couple of weeks ago, so I hope it holds up. <laughs> as well as the patron-only podcast that Ian and Joe record, Pillow Talk, which is uh, a mystery. It's the mystery of uh, pillows, I guess. I don't know. We will see what happens. <laughs> the secret life of pillows. What if, what if I just instead of, in like the new season of pillow talk, instead of like having like pillow talk, this type of talk, it's just pillow puns on like famous books. Pillow like Moby puns pillow. on Moby pillow. Is that a pun? Or, <laughs> well, I can't say pillow dick. Pillow dick. Pillow dick is funnier than <laughs> than Moby pillow. What What do you mean? I don't uh, Kant's critique of rational pillow, you know, that's pretty good. That's, that's, that's gotta be, be it's not a, but it's not a pun. It's just you just change the word. Well, that's how it works in Bob's Burgers. So I'm just following in the tradition of that's the fair. burgers. Who am I? Who am I to judge? Well, it may be that you're not able to support the show financially right now, but you can do some other things that are really, really helpful. You can rate, review, and subscribe uh, on the podcast platforms. Um, You can share this podcast on social media and keep listening because all of that also helps. That is very true. And now... On to the show. One, two, five, nine. Prophet, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Quick editorial comment, listeners. Around minute 23 and minute 40, I referenced Derek's grandmother. It should be Derek's great-grandmother. Editor's note over. Enjoy the show. Listeners, this week on the podcast, we have a guest with us. This week we have with us Derek Scott III, who is the wonderful and amazing host of Bar of the Conference. We featured one episode of Bar of the Conference when Ian was on earlier this year, but it has continued and it has continued to impress. So I want to make sure that we plug it right up top. But before we get into the depth of that podcast plug, Derek, will you introduce yourself to our listeners and as much information as you want to share? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, I just need to say that I am such a fan of this podcast. What the hell is a pastor? Joe and Ethan, I just, I always cheer in for y'all in the incredible conversations that you're hosting. 
With that said, I'm Derek Scott III. Um, I am a lay leader and campus minister in the Florida Conference of the United Methodist Church. Um, I've been in campus ministry for over 20 years, serving college-aged young adults in Northeast Florida, Jacksonville, St. Augustine. Um, I do a lot of stuff in the institution of the United Methodist Church, particularly over the last couple of years, working with different parts of our denomination. I love it all. Um, I also can every now and then be found in a craft brewery called Intuition Ale Works here in Jacksonville. I have been with them. It'd actually be 10 years in November working behind the bar as a beer tender. And it's been a really beautiful part of my life the last few years to be able to both be in ministry and also serve craft beer uh, to folks. And yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of weird things about me. I'm an Enneagram 5, INTP, introvert all day, every day. came out in June of 2020. And so um, May of 2020, actually. And so that's a part of my story as well. And um, I've got a dog and a cat. My dog's name is Winston. He's 10 years old and amazing. My cat is a Bengal named Julian, who at some point will try to destroy something during this interview because Julian is a Bengal cat, a wild animal. (laughs) Yeah. So Derek, you host Bar of the Conference, as we've mentioned, and I, what I love about that is that it is a very different podcast from what the <laughs> hell is a pastor. You, it's clear that you do so much work in curating your guests and preparing really thoughtful questions for the direction of the interview. Everything is very well paced. You are very intentional about that. And yet you still get these incredible stories and incredible thoughts from people kind of across the connection, people who can also speak to more international context. Um, I am so floored by the guests that you have and and the warmth and the willingness they all bring to talk to you about not only the 2019 conference, but what we're looking forward to ahead in 2024 and beyond. Um, is there, I mean, everybody should go listen to it. It is a different vibe than what we do and much more informative. Um, but is there anything that you want to plug about the podcast? Anything that's coming up that listeners should keep an ear out for? No, you know, um, Joe, I appreciate all that you just said um, about it. Uh, it's definitely the hope and the aim. And sometimes I feel like we we knock it out of the park and then there are other episodes that I'm like, oh gosh, I hope that that worked. Um, but really my goal is to create a broad conversation about who is in the United Methodist Church, who's staying mm. in the United Methodist Church. There are spaces for debate um, that are valid, and there's a lot that needs to be debated. Mm-hmm. There, there is space to talk about what, like literally who decides the future of the United Methodist Church and, and what we do about power, what we do about our um, historic uh, ills, including racism and homophobia, transphobia, our our inability to, even after all this time, to continue to acknowledge the role and and the the vibrancy of women in ministry. Um, There's an issue even around um, the U.S.-centric way we think about the United Methodist Church. All of that stuff is really, really important. And there are real people who are who would be having those conversations, leading those debates. I'm interested in meeting those people. 
mm. and hearing the stories that bring them into, if you will, the bar of the conference. And so that's that's really what I've been trying to do. Um, I'm not trying to um, sort of put people on the hot seat necessarily. Um, the thing is, though, when you tell your own story, particularly if you really tell it, it's going to reveal parts of your journey that others may not understand. Hmm. And this is what we've got to get better at across the spectrum in United Methodism to receive individual stories with open hearts and open hands. I'm not trying to do that thing, but it's, <laughs> it's close to receive people's stories as they are, to not edit them, to not um, try to re reframe them, but to allow people to bring their full selves to the table. This is what I want as a black gay man in the United Methodist Church. And so with this podcast, this is my effort to allow people to do that as well, to bring their full selves, both their story of how they got to the UMC and also where they find themselves right now. Um, and so I hope that it's a part of our, it, it's what helps us get to our future as a denomination, that we're learning how to listen to each other and we've got other conversations to have, but we're really getting good at listening to each other and 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 receiving each other um, in our most honest, in our most vulnerable. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm trying to do with it. And there's not really anything, I mean, every, every episode to me is special. Um, mm. We always try to get it out by four o'clock on Friday. Sometimes we hit that mark and sometimes life gets in the way. Um, and I work with an incredible team of folks that make Bar the Conference happen. So this is a really good time for me to name them. Oh, do it. Yeah. I, I work with a really great guy named Neil McMichael, who engineers every single podcast. Um, uh, Neil comes in clutch every week. We work late hours to make the the episodes as best as they can be. Neil's amazing. And then there's Michael Miyako, who is my graphic designer, who makes all of those graphics for each episode. Which are amazing. And again, Michael is my guy. He just, um, he's, he's great. And then we have other folks doing different parts that are less specific to each episode, but I got Allison working on social media, Michael Yerick doing some other stuff around uh, promotion as well as web stuff and just a great team that I get to work with. Um, and it's, it really is a privilege. So yeah, um, I love it. And I'm really grateful that people are enjoying uh, this podcast. We'll see how much longer I can do it, but I'm I'm definitely <laughs> going to do it through the rest of the year. Uh, that's definitely the plan, um, mm -hmm. and and more than likely up through general conference. But yeah. we'll see. I'm loving it, and I really appreciate you, Joe, listening and repping for it too as well. Yeah, always happy to. And I'm I'm glad that Ian knows you and Ian could make this connection to us. Every I feel like every time I open my mouth to ask Ian a question, he's like, "Oh, so and so in this conference doing this thing could really help you out on this." Like, the for all that I feel very disconnected from the United Methodist connection, Ian is plugged in. <laughs> so, and I'm not yeah. trying to be an Ian stand, but I might have to be an Ian stand for a moment cuz gosh, like that guy's amazing. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, he just, um, he has such a, a breadth of knowledge. And, but he's also 
really, really clear about the non-negotiables. And I love that mm-hmm. combination um, of, of knowing so much about our system and how we got here and also being really, really crystal clear about what he's for and what he's not. I, I just, of many things, I appreciate Ian for those two specific things. Okay, I have, yeah. I have done that part, so. <laughs> All we need now is for Ethan to jump in and talk about how handsome Ian is. Ian, I mean, Ian is incredibly handsome. We all know that. <laughs> that part, that's yes. obvious. It's clear. I just assumed we were all on the same page. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Joe, do you need to be reminded that Ian no. is handsome? Okay, <laughs> I didn't think so. I just need the world to know how attractive my partner is. Okay, we'll see how much of that stays in. All right. Um, well, if people got through the love fest at the beginning of this, let's jump into um, stuff that I assume will have some bumps along the way, because I don't think you get to be a, a gay black man conference lay leader in the Florida annual conference without some bumps. Yeah. So Derek, what got you into ministry? I've heard you ask people like, how did God's provenient grace work to get you to where you are? You are such a... Um, hype man for the ministry of the laity how did you get to this place yeah okay so um starts with my family um and the church that i grew up in uh we did not grow up united Methodists. we grew up in an african-american baptist congregation national baptist is the official denomination um and i mean from day one of my life our our rhythm centered around church so we were at church four days a week on the easy week. Um, mm. And uh, the, everything that we did, it's every, every question we asked started with, and what does that mean for what we're doing at church? Um, I came to faith at four and uh, very, very different uh, tradition than what we celebrate in United Methodism. But I came to faith at four with a an Afri- with, with a confession of faith and remember being baptized and just remember very clearly at my baptism at four um, could have articulated this way but remember the feeling of I'm I'm here to do something for the sake of Jesus in this world and my my work is to continue to center his church in in whatever I do and so that's that's what got me started my great grandmother uh incredible woman Hesse solomon she had a master's in education and doctorate in theology um so to be a black woman um in the south with those credentials in a a denomination that still didn't know what to do with strong black women uh is she's she found a way to dominate and and to bring all of who she was to the table titles or not um, but she was the reason we were always in church. So um, we were, you know, had to be at church first on Sundays because she ran the Sunday school. Um, and so we had to be the ones to open the church. And usually we were involved in something uh, that required us to stay either after the service was over or to go back to church, after, you know, in the evenings on Sunday. And then she ran um, an adult basic education class uh, for middle-aged African-Americans. And she did that two days a week. And so that took us to church uh, and we did it at church. So um, that took us to church on Tuesday and Wednesday evenings. And then um, 
Tuesday and Thursday evenings. Wednesday evening was teachers meeting for Sunday school and prayer meeting. Um, and then there were other things that would happen, other meetings, other work that needed to be done. This is the woman that started to take me to church conferences when I was seven, um, taught me how to live out of a suitcase, taught me how to ask for ac- extra napkins at the restaurants because my name is Derek. And, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, started inviting me to be on different committees. So I was on a finance committee at nine years old and I was shaping youth ministry and music ministry at 11. And, um, and, and it goes from there. And so this is the world I grew up in. This actually wasn't like, I wasn't an odd person in the church I grew up in. Everyone that I grew up with was deeply engaged in church. And it just was Mm. a different kind of congregation that said, if you're a member of the church, doesn't matter how old you are. If you're a member, you've got a ministry, you've got a role to play. We just have to figure out where to put you. Um, but I mean, me and my siblings were always in church. That's just what we did. And it just was. There wasn't a, and yeah, there were weeks that we didn't want to be there and weeks that we got, you know, drugged by our parents. And there were Sundays that our parents looked at us, whether we were in the choir stand and they were paying attention to us cutting up or it was vice versa. Like we had all of that, but our context was being in church. And so that's just what we did. So let me just put a, a pin there and add one layer. I knew at four that, that Jesus loved me, that there was a call in my life. I also knew that I was attracted to men. And again, I could not have put that into words in this way when I was four years old, but I remember the feeling. I remember that I um, was attracted, using a little A, attracted to other people who seemed to look more like me than look less like me. Um, I I knew that I was supposed to want a girlfriend and that just wasn't the biggest thing um, on my list, but man, did I have an interest in some of the dudes that were hanging around our space. And so now taking that piece and locating it in this, this kid who is doing a ton of church work, um, going to conferences, gets his first Bible at six. Um, I got my first concordance when I was 10. Wow. Um, Deep, my great grandmother put the Apostles' Creed in front of me when I was eight because she she wanted me to see it and to begin to think about what it meant. All of these mm. things, and I got the impression that gay people were not okay. I got that. I got that impression really early, but it didn't really hit me until I was eleven. And some things happened when I was eleven that sort of woke up my brain to this dissonance that I had not paid attention to. And, you know, some of it's just brain development, but I, I woke up to this dissonance that I spent my entire life in church and I was a person that was not acceptable. And my interpretation of all of that, and this again, brain development, wow, God must've created me so that God could then reject me. And so oh. I carried all of that through my teen years had a bout of teenage depression. Um, and even through that, I could sense the Holy Spirit pursuing me. This is why I talk about prevenient grace so much, because mm. I could sense the Holy Spirit pursuing me at the exact points that I was trying to walk away. I could feel mm. that. And um, that's its own podcast for another day. But 
this is all important to why I'm still involved in church now. Um, so gosh, I thank you for sharing all that, that oh, there's so much in there to think about, but something that struck me is that you talked about being there before the service and after the service. And that mm-hmm. is my mom was in charge of the nursery. So we were there before the service and after the service, like we were yeah. the people who turned off the lights in the building yeah, and that was yeah. my whole childhood as well. And how do you reflect, because to me, those are some of the most like the most holy and precious and like right feelings and memories in my life. You know, like Mm -hmm. I think back about those times of like, I have been entrusted with this holy space and this holy space, trust me, you know, like there was this real connection to the life of the church in this like important way. Did like, can you think back to before the dissonance came in, what kind of feelings you had about the church and church life that came with being so involved? Oh my gosh. Yes. Uh, Joe, it was the safest place in the world to me. Mm. Even though that building was so effing scary. <laughs> like, it was so scary. And, like, I had this thing about, like, the people who had funerals in the building and their spirits somehow lingering in the building. And so if you're the only mm. one there, you're never the other. And that, again, that's a different podcast altogether, talking about the ancestors and the loved ones that are still with us in that mm. way. But, like, I just had this image, like, if I'm in the building by myself, I'm never in the building by myself. I'm in the building with the whole communion of saints. And that just for, like, a little kid is scary. And at the same time, the safest place I could be. And so there were these, there were these um, moments where I needed to get something done and I couldn't really do it at home. I didn't want to do it at home. So my mom would just drop me off at like 7 PM and I'd be the only person in the church building, just lock the door behind me kind of thing. And then she'd pick me up at 11 PM and, and I would have gotten all my stuff done. And those were like the best times. Again, I'm an introvert. So that's some of it too. Um, But, oh my gosh, safest, place in the world. And so even when I was experiencing that dissonance and and even, you know, this sense that like, I've got to hide this part of me, I never really got the impression that church was bad. Mm. It was people who probably didn't have all of the answers and all of the understanding that they needed that I was afraid of. I was afraid of people. I was never afraid of the church. Hmm. And that building for me still is to this day, safest place for me to be. Literally when something bad happens, I want to go to a church. Oh, Yes. Oh gosh. Ah, I didn't realize the, um, the pain that that would bring out in me, even though I asked the question, but I thank you. I love that. I, and also thinking about your grandmother who just sounds like an amazing woman. And I am so thankful for what she has given you, but also just for the witness of, of all that she has done. Mm -hmm. It sounds like she was the person who got you kind of involved in doing conferences and, and kind of leadership roles in the church. And Ethan, I want if this is a point of comparison for you because I'm not really clear Ethan how you got involved going to conference did you feel like this was something that you were kind of welcomed into and nurtured into or is or were you kind of forced into it um it's it's actually kind of neither it's it's not so simple um Hmm. I started going to conference because my mom and I got involved with CCYM which is Hmm. uh at the time I don't know I Derek I don't know 
uh, how far reaching CCYM is or was, but it's it, the it, it's in the South. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so it's the Conference Council on Youth Ministries, mm-hmm. um, and at the time when I was in middle school and high school, I I did CCYM, well, actually all the way up to my senior year. I was president of CCYM, and wow. I did I did. Uh, um, just a bunch of nonsense. And, and at my conference, it was a bunch of nonsense. Mm-hmm. I met, met a girlfriend on CCYM, fooled around during conference once. That was fun. Those oh, my things, God. Uh, those things happen. Those things happen. Yeah, right? what do you want? What do you, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> I was 17, Joe. What do you want? Yeah, no, that's that's on me. I should have known better. <laughs> um, Ethan, I'm receiving your honesty, so I, pre- I appreciate it. I do. Thank you, Derek. It looks like I'm going to need a new co-host soon. Good luck finding somebody to edit it, Ethan. Uh, well, I, Derek seems to have a, a team of professionals, so I think I think we're going to be fine, Joe. Um, the last but, ever episode of what? The final episode. <laughs> a very oh special episode. I love uh, it. I love it. No, I, I would say that my time at conference was the first time so like, I don't think I was forced to do conference stuff because like, it was just one of those things, right? Like I, I did this thing with my mom. I was always involved with church because church was a, a space where I could do well in, you know, it didn't matter that I didn't buy any of it. Um, you know, at the time I, I just could, I could succeed at it. And, um, when my mom and I started doing CCYM, it was uh, more of that. And then I discovered, oh, wow, look, conference has a, you know, the, the Methodist church has this uh, political dimension that I can mm. also uh, do kind of fun, silly things with. It was the first time I ever got, me being able to go to annual conference was the first time that I ever got yelled at by by, by grown ordained elders mm. um, for who I am and what I believed in. That was fun. I cast a vote to support Palestine and uh, an ordained an ordained elder saw that I cast the vote and, and came over to the youth section at annual conference and personally chewed me out. Um, And then my, and then my mom uh, physically got into his space and, and like pushed him away. It was pretty amazing. Um, And then I got to go to the general conference in 2008 because of that. So, Ooh. Uh, that's when Maxie Dunham uh, met me. Me and Maxie had a good conversation that year. Oh mm. wow! Yeah, mm. Darth Maxie. So if you ever if you ever want him on your podcast, I think we have the connection, Derek. Um, th- yeah, let keep going. Not going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> no, like like that's basically my my kind of relationship to it. Like Derek, your description of church is this incredibly sort of safe place. Mm-hmm. I I there's a part of me that kind of hears that and understands that. But my experience with church as a safe place is more like a church was a place that I'm very familiar with. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's a place that I don't, that I'm not intimidated by. And that, that sort of continues into my ministry eventually as a pastor and as a Christian and, and stuff like that. But it's built for me on a foundation of, you know, just, I was never not, I mean, I was unwelcomed in different church spaces, but, but that was more politics than because of kind of who I was and stuff like that. Yeah. I, Ethan, I love that. I'll just say in response, I, 
for whatever reason, I equate safety with familiarity, safety with um, knowing how this thing works. Um, you know what I mean? Like, so obviously not safe to be fully who I was. That definitely is not what that meant. But I think some of it is, you know, growing up in the family that I grew up in and being involved at such an early age, I saw the ugly side of church really early Hmm. and had to live with the tension that some of these ugly people are my family. Some of these ugly people are people that celebrate me. Some of these ugly people um, are people who also do really great things. And so very early, I had to work out that my pastor could be both supportive of my family and preach a message that was essentially against my family. And I had to hold that at eight when my parents divorced. Oof. Right. Like, and, and again, some of this is my personality. The emotional part of that didn't hit till much later. Mm-hmm. So I'm dealing with the fact that it happened way before I'm dealing with whatever pain it might've caused me. And so growing up a lot of that, a lot of the pain of growing up in church really didn't hit until after I was good in there, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I appreciate where you're coming from too, Ethan, because the the piece that, you know, I, I, with my story that I think is really important, uh, one angle at least, is in church, in church life, in the institution of the church, the last thing we should be doing is making someone feel like they do not have a voice in what this thing is. That's Mm -hmm. the last thing we should do. That is not the communion of saints. That is not the church universal. That is not the priesthood of all believers. Like if we start shutting down people's voices because it doesn't line up with our prescription, in my opinion, we are missing what church is supposed to be. And my work was to get the courage to not just stay at the table in general, but to stay at the table specifically as a Black gay man. Mm. Um, And that was my work. And yes, there was also work of people not standing in my way and not creating (laughs) obstacles and barriers. But there's that part of courage on my part. And this is why I do champion the laity so much. Laity have got to have courage. Laity have got to have a courage and a willingness and 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 a a grit that that says our voice matters in what happens next. Thankfully, mm. United Methodism it's built into our polity, but I didn't grow up United Methodist. I grew up in a space that the voice of the laity had to sort of be inserted quite clearly and and directly if it was going to have its say. So all that all that to say. I I feel like what you experienced, Ethan, um, I really wish I knew who that clergy person was so that I can roll up into that annual conference and be like, hey, man, that's not church. That's just not church at all. Mm. Not at all. Not that it would do anything, but there we go. I think you mean that you would like to correct that brother in love. Um, He might not experience it as love, but sure. (laughs) I'd like to, I'd like to lay hands on you and pray. That's what I, 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 
I appreciate that Nehemiah reference, Ethan, of laying the hand, laying hands on people who are making trouble for the people of God. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> so good. Okay, so we we got distracted before you went. I think before you went on to college. So talk about teen years and moving beyond your time and the local church you grew up in. Yes, and I'm going to skip over tons of stuff. So I yeah. end up. I ended up making my way into United Methodism um, and, and not to, again, its own story, but I'm in United Methodism, particularly in a United Methodist church that was not really a United Methodist church. Um, it was, um, I mean, they didn't even want the name on, on the sign. So um, they were, they're one of those kinds of congregations that gave me lots of opportunities to um, grow in my leadership and to take some risk and to do some really, really cool things. They really supported me in a lot of ways, um, but they accidentally introduced me to the larger conversation that is the United Methodist Church. They would have rathered I'd stay just located in that one local church and never found myself in the connection. Mm. By God's grace, I found myself connect, being connected to the district and the conference, meeting people, and, and that's where I fell into campus ministry and doing that, and that's what I've done for about 20 years. Um, and so, yeah, I'm skipping over a ton of stuff. Um, but part of what was unique about my role is that I was a layperson in campus ministry. Um, that had to do with the fact that I started in that local church as a local church college ministry director. And then we started doing outreach to the campuses that were close by to our local church, which then put us in connection with the conference. This was the main way that I got connected to the conference. Um, and eventually I just started finding more affinity with my conference colleagues than with the folks I was doing work with in that local church. Um, that was actually really hard for me, um, that I was, I felt like I was more on the page of other clergy and other leaders. Um, my theology was, was changing. I definitely had a bout in Calvinism that we will not talk about. Um, <laughs> um, and there's always a bit of Pentecostal charismatic stuff happening around me because I'm a black man in the South. Um, mm. And there's a little bit of Catholicism that keeps me grounded, actually. Um, but I really started resonating with what I was hearing from these quote unquote progressives. Um, and that was, I didn't know what to do with that because it felt like that was, I, I had to start to make a choice. Like I either chose these colleagues over here or I chose my friends that I'd been in church with over here. I hated that. So it's weird that in the church that I grew up in, I could figure out that dissonance and figure out that tension. But in my 20s, that tension was really messing with me. I ended up getting an opportunity to start a new campus ministry, a new Wesley Foundation for our area. And what that meant was that I was going to leave that local church, at least the job, and I was going to really put all my time and energy into planting this campus ministry. And I took that opportunity, which then led me to have to make connections to many of our local churches, be deeply, more deeply connected to our conference, and even make connections outside of our conference because we needed funding and we needed partners and all of that. And again, I'm doing all of this as a layperson. Mm. I have to step into rooms as a campus minister but to speak at the same level of my campus ministry colleagues who had MDivs and DMins, um, it took me 
seven, but really 17 years to get through undergrad. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm going to be 43 on Saturday at the timing of this recording. So you can do the math and all of that. Congratulations. So I've never been in seminary, um, never been like a student in seminary, I've been to a lot of seminaries, but I've never been a student, never taken a class. I had to be kind of at the same level of my campus ministry colleagues. So it required me to do a lot of personal learning and listening to a lot of lectures on YouTube and and figuring out what it meant to be United Methodist as opposed to something else so that I could speak about that clearly. Um, and there's a lot of benefits to that. But the, the biggest piece of that for me is that it I realized just how hard it is for a layperson at times to just get into these conversations. I yeah. mean, to even understand our polity, to understand that there are, there are actually words that if you said them in a room with United Methodists, they would begin to be skeptical of your Wesleyan bona fides. And this is all stuff that I just lived through um, and experienced as a layperson that was serving as a campus minister. And let me be clear, nobody was a dick to me about any of this. For me, my ability to arrive as a valid United Methodist was directly tied to my ability to build this campus ministry. I needed people to see that I was was, um, capable of leading a campus ministry that could really serve college-age young adults that then would contribute to the future of the church and the world. And so I had to always come ready. Yeah. And and so that that makes you a very specific type of person is what I'm saying. Um and yeah. that that and again that's where when I start talking about laity having courage, laity staying at the table, laity um really stirring up their own gift, it really comes out of that, you know, 12 15 years of having to do so much work and a lot of it on my own. Now We've got a lot of different resources now, and so things are different than they were back then. And again, I'm coming out of a congregation that wasn't connected, so there's a lot of stuff that I didn't know was available to me as mm-hmm. a layperson. But a lot of the work of being a lay leader, a little L lay leader in this denomination, is that we we have to walk into a room and be able to speak almost on the same level as our clergy, but Hmm. without the same experiences, without the same exposure. But if we don't do that, in some places, we aren't taken seriously. Yeah. So Shemaya talked about when we had her on recently that um, as she was going through the ordination process, Mm -hmm. that because she was a black person who wasn't a dyed in the wool Methodist, Mm -hmm. that she would get asked different questions than her Mm -hmm. peers would get asked. Um, And so I wonder if that if that's part of the thing that's at play, too, is that like people feel like they need to know that, you know, maybe even more than they know for you to belong in that room. I so. I also wonder why you would do this. I mean, to me, that's a barrier that like, I would just choose to do something else. (laughs) You know, if Mm -hmm. I have to go learn everything on my own, that's ridiculous to me Um, to be at the same level. I mean, we, we had classmates at Wesley who um, did not take a theology heavy track in their learning. And so I, maybe, maybe some of the content that they were focusing on is more accessible than systematics, but still like, why 
what do you think it was having seen your grandmother and the way that she led and the the way that she brought what she learned into her ministry or like like what drives you to do that yeah i i think you actually named it joe i have this theory that um we will always without a lot of work and without a lot of like intervention we'll always do what we saw the folks who raised us, what we saw them do. Um, mm. And this is what I saw my great grandmother do. And let me also name my mother as well, um, who is an incredible human, Vanetta Jordan. And um, again, this um, giving our lives to the sake of the church and uh, giving our lives for the sake of the church. Um, she embodies that uh, today as much as my great grandmother did when I was growing up. But yeah, I mean, that was what was modeled for me that seemed to matter. That mattered to my great-grandmother. That matters to my mom. And it mattered to me, and where it lands for me is, uh, for the last 20 years, the number of students that I would encounter that wanted to be a part of a church but didn't fit a prescription. Hmm. And United Methodism seemed like the best place that they could land. And I just felt like it was part of my job as a campus minister to both prepare those students to be a part of the church, but also to prepare the church to receive them. Ooh, yeah. And so I felt like it was, and I actually didn't see lay leadership coming. Like that is something that kind of fell in my lap. And then I was like, oh, all right, this might be a part of what God wants to do through me. But really it's, it's always been about my students. I mean, it's always been about these college-age young adults who have calls in their lives and have gifts and, and have a desire to be a part of, they want to be a part of a church. I know not all young adults want to be a part of a church. I know that not all millennials and Gen Zers are like, oh my gosh, I just want to be a part of an affirming denomination. I know that's not all of them, but that was enough of the ones that I served that like, I owe it to them to at least try. And hmm. in order to do that as a layperson, that means I gotta, I gotta get in there and and we gotta do some stuff. And so that's really been the driving force for me. It's been these students, man, and and I get to see some of the fruit of that with, you know, now being in this work so long, I've got some of my students who are now full connected elders and deacons um, wow. in the church and are doing some really great work in, in different parts of our work and, and witness around the world and get it and, and are engaged um, in the life of the church at multiple levels. I get to see that fruit. It's always been about them. I mean, it really has always been about making sure that they could come into the church in a way that I didn't think I could. I didn't mm. think that I could come into the church and be fully myself. I, I am, I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't want them to have to go through that. And I'm grateful that that's, I think it's working out. Um, but that's, that's the reason. So, yeah. Yeah. I am going to ask you the question that of course everybody asks. Uh, and I mean it with, with all generosity, why not be ordained? Why stay in the ministry of the laity? Yeah. Um, so I was on, I did explore candidacy. I was uh, an exploring candidate and I went to a candidacy retreat here in the Florida conference and then was placed in a candidacy small group uh, that met every other week. And on the fifth week, 
we were talking about the different tracks, elder, deacon, local pastor. And in the book that we were using, there was a couple paragraphs about the laity, but my candidacy mentor didn't mention them. And I get why she didn't, because we're in a candidacy small group. So, Mm -hmm. um, but I asked her a question about the role of laity and I don't actually remember the answer that Melissa Pisco gave me directly, but I remember as she was answering my question about the role of laity, and this is where things get a bit Pentecostal here, so. Go for it. I could have sworn I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, that's where I want you. I want hmm. you a part of the laity. And I'm just one of those people that, and some of this is my Baptocostal upbringing, but if I... I'm I'm not one of those people that's like always 100% sure I heard it. But if I heard it, I can't act like I didn't hear it. Mm. And so I'm making decisions based on I could have sworn I heard something. And I'm going to keep testing this until this isn't it. This doesn't work. Um, At that time, I was thinking that the only reason I was allowed to start a campus ministry, this all happened kind of close closely um, by um, planning the campus ministry and exploring candidacy. And I honestly thought that if I did not stay in that candidacy process, I was going to be removed from my job. Mm. But I heard a voice and I couldn't act like I didn't hear that voice. And so I sat on it for a couple of weeks and then I sent the email to my candidacy mentors and to my district superintendent. I think I'm called to laity And I know that probably comes with some consequences, but that is what it is. And I can't act like that's not the direction that I've heard. I, I've used that, that, that leading to start a campus ministry. I use that leading to, you know, do this thing and do that thing. And and those things seem to check out. So I'm going to have to go with what I think I heard. And I pretty sure I heard Jesus say to me, I want you in laity. I want you to lead, but I want you to be a lay person leading. And, and so that's it. Um, hmm. And I'll just say, I've been shocked every single year that people still want me to be a part of this thing called the United Methodist Church as a layperson. <laughs> but that is, that's the reason that I didn't go down that road. Um, I think it's interesting too. People have always affirmed me, affirmed my gifts and um And I've been really grateful for that. But I think some of that affirmation, because it always shows up as, oh, my gosh, Derek, you can preach. You should be, oh, my gosh, Derek, you can lead. You should be, oh, my gosh, Derek, you understand polity. You should be. And it could very well be that 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 is true for some people. And it could also be that a layperson can preach and lead and understand polity and even at times have giftings that look like clergy. Mm-hmm. And Jesus be really, really, really intent that that person be laity. I'll, I'll add this piece. Could it be that Jesus is protecting me because at the time I was in the closet and had I come out, I would it would have turned into a whole thing of, of, oh my gosh, there's this queer person that now wants to be ordained. Maybe, but that just doesn't, and, and I'm here to like advocate for my queer candidates and queer clergy, but that really doesn't come up for me. Like, I don't feel like my, my sexual identity is, is, is um, 
the reason I'm a lay person or the reason Jesus called me to laity, I really feel like this is the road I'm supposed to be on. Um, and so that, that I just say that because yeah, it is true that had I come out earlier, I would not be able to do any of the things that I do today. It is totally true. I'm the co-lay leader of the Florida Conference. I've been that. I've been the co-lay leader now for a full year. I've been leading in the Florida Conference for over a decade. And there are places and there are positions and roles and 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 spaces that I could have never been invited into had I been out and a clergy person. Mm-hmm. So I recognize that, but I personally, that's not. There isn't any congruence there. I think I do think Jesus called me to the ministry of the laity. And so I'm just doing what was modeled for me. I'm just pouring my life into that. Does that make any kind of sense? I think it makes absolute sense. That's what I was going to say a little earlier. Is that like we, the church needs and like, honest to God, God, if you're listening, put a call on more laity's life. The church needs laity representatives that aren't retired people. You know, mm-hmm. those are often the people who have the time to serve. Yep. And I understand that context. But but there is something that happens to your brain <laughs> when you get ordained, right? Mm-hmm. There is something about the the ordination process, the role of elder, or, or even being ordained as a deacon, the, the idea that like you have been called and you have been sent in this way that is now affirmed with um, a placement and a paycheck, it yeah. does something to you. Um, and like, I again, we know many elders, we love many elders. I'm not saying that that makes you a bad person, but there is something distinct about not being part of that club and not having the power and privilege that happens when you walk into a space with reverend in front of your name. Oh my you gosh. Know? And I'll, I'll say that one of the, one of my privileges is that I live in these two worlds. I'm a campus minister who preaches regularly um, and and I have to you know do pastoral care things and and lead so there's a lot of my life and my work that looks very clergy like mm. absolutely and yet I am not allowed to serve the sacraments I am not allowed um, to I, I'm not ordering the church I am I am a I am one of the people in the pews. Now I'm an active person in the pew. I know my power and I know my voice. Um, but I am happy to let the, the 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 clergy person that's leading the local church I'm a part of, Reverend Ben Richards. I am happy for him to be our pastor. I'm not here to do it, but I get it. I get the struggles that he has, and that becomes a gift and a privilege that I try to leverage that. As a layperson, I do understand where often our clergy are coming from in their struggles. And at the same time, I get to say to them, this is the impact of your leadership. This is the impact of your preaching. This is the impact of of the decisions that you make, especially when you're making them from a very clergy-centric position. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh God, you have just like got me back in like the whirlpool vortex of United Methodism (laughs) and call of the life of the church. And you've got me back in the like, well, of course I need to be ordained. I am called to order the life of the church. I want to do the sacrament. This is why I fit. 
I gotta reel all that back in. <laughs> I did a lot of work to think about that. <laughs> I, I apologize for being that person. I <laughs> this just diverts it. I mean, there is a reason why I'm still in the United Methodist Church too, Jill. I mean, I mm-hmm. I love the United Methodist Church. I really do. I am a metho nerd. I am. I'm a fan. I and yeah. I'm I'm here to talk about all the shit that we need to deal with. I am here to call out all our ills. And also, I'm gonna be one of the last folks standing. Like hmm. I I I love this thing. And you know, I, I've had to explain to some people, I and 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 this this you will get you will get some mail on this, okay? So just great. Uh Ethan and Joe, just get ready. I'm an institutionalist. <gasps> I am I am like mm. I I I so much of my theology leans towards a progressive view of the way the wor- the church in the world should be but I I I am I am here for this institution and mm. so that creates a different dynamic as well um but man I love I love the United Methodist Church and I'm here to fight for it because I do believe that it needs to get its shit together so that it can actually do some really great things in the world for the sake of Jesus. Yeah. I mean, you were in great company with that. Like we've had on uh, Jeremy Smith and Tara Mm. Davis Barnes and Ian, and they are all to like different extents institutionalists who like believe in the power of the UMC. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but you know, you've said that you listen to the podcast, so you know that we want to burn it all down. (laughs) Hey gosh, I get it. Like I totally get it. And I think that as an institutionalist, part of my work is to listen to those who are like, no, just want to burn the whole thing down. The folks who come to that conversation in good faith, by the way. But, yeah. but you no, know, I think, I mean, this is part of this is also when you're in campus ministry, you are always listening to the most radical voice on any topic. Yeah. Um, and if I don't have room to receive them, then I'm not doing my job as a campus minister. But the folks who have lost hope in the institution have so much to tell me. They have so much to teach me. And my work as an institutional leader is to continue to make space for those individuals and they may not ever come back. Like we may not ever win them back, but they have so much information that we need. And that means that institutions like me need to grow up. We need to grow up and be able Mm -hmm. to hear the criticisms and hear the pushback and hear the reasons why people have left and, and to note it and to do better. Yeah. I, with your permission, I'm just going to take that sound clip and send that to every bishop, you know, I'm just going to pass it around. Well, I, and I, I've said this on another podcast. I love our bishops. I deeply love our bishops and I respect them. And also you're our bishops. If you can't handle the hard conversations and model how to do that for us, who is going to do that? Yeah. So I, I am here to hold bishops accountable for leadership. I'm here to invite and to compel our bishops to have moral and theological courage and to just be where they are. And in some respects, yes, let the chips fall where they may. And I get that our bishops in particular are holding so many, so much of the tension and trying to quote unquote, hold the church together. And also please do not abdicate your role to lead even in the messiest of moments. Yes. Um, and so, while I'm not saying that to give you direct permission to <laughs> send that clip to them, oh my gosh, 
our bishops need to continue to lead. Yeah. And to be the model, and this is so weird, but to be the model of what it means to be courageous followers of Jesus for the sake of the church and the world. Yeah, they mm-hmm. should be doing that. They should be number one in that. Well, yeah. well, my friend, Derek, I think the only way, uh, here's my push. The Come on. only way that's going to happen is if the United Methodist Church falls apart. Mm. The only reason, and this to me, it's a purely practical reason for this, is because currently the the role, because I struggle with the bishops a ton, the Mm -hmm. role that you and I want the bishops to take on is simply not in their job description. Right. That's not what they're getting paid to do. That's not what the call of the bishop is on in the discipline. Oh, that's not even how we got them, Ethan. We got them because we have campaigns. And I love them all, and I'm glad for the ones sure. who've been elected. But we got our bishops because they, at times, said the right things, and people are like, "Okay, I'll, I'll vote for you." Exactly, exactly. And that, I think that's just what I'm where I come from when it comes mm-hmm. to the bishops, because we, I, I, every now and again, I go back and I listen to to past episodes we do because I like to listen to my voice. Um, <laughs> as long fun. as you know it. It makes me happy. Um, I, I usually I go, man, this guy is so smart. This is the most intelligent podcast on the internet. Um, Love it. That's why I listen. <laughs> but but we we did an episode a couple months ago, more than a few months ago now. Uh, Bishop Oliveto, who we love. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, did an interview about reformation and how currently the United Methodist Church is going through a reformation. And she mm-hmm. talked about that. And, and we did, a, we, we recorded about 30 minutes just chatting about it. And, and basically Joe and I were both like, uh, I think this is a, re- we, we both sort of agree that this is an incredibly misguided way of seeing what is happening. Hmm. Um, hmm. We're going through a reformation. I mean, Currently, if this is a reformation, then it's a reformation that we will only see any fruits of in such a distant future that why even bring it up? You know, it, it, we're, mm-hmm. we're talking about we're talking about a fundamental failure of the United Methodist Church. This isn't the United Methodist Church reforming. This is the United Methodist Church, you know, holding on to power, purposefully lying to annual conferences goofing up to such a degree that they have rewarded um, openly anti-gay and hostile pastors with large churches and annual conferences. These pastors have taken those churches away and have, and have uh, lied to them and sent and, and brought them into the arms of the GMC, a group that under no circumstances should we be in connection with. You know, if it means protecting vulnerable people, like like this mm-hmm. isn't a reformation, and and we chatted about why we thought Bishop Oliveto said that, and at least where I fell, and and Joe and I talked about it together, and I think Joe agreed, but I don't want to put words in Joe's mouth. Like where where at least I fell, you know, was well, no matter how much we like Bishop Oliveto, the job of the bishop is to maintain the United Methodist Church. And so everything is always going to be cast in these sort of um, peace, peace when there is no peace mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, language and, and, and framework. You know, if we if we constantly say over and over, as my bishop did in the Susquehanna Annual Conference for a long time, and I'm sure others, 
that that we're better together. We're we're more we, we, we can do more good together. Can we not love alike, as Wesley said? Um, and we say it over and over. I, I just have to say, and I've been saying this for many years now, well, of course we can't. Of course we can't love alike. <laughs> We're not. And of course, and of course um, my, my desire to see bishops call a thing what it is and, and lead it in a frankly in a more executive way mm-hmm. especially during this time is just will always be frustrated because i just don't think that we have asked as an institution we have asked these you know the bishops to do that and so i i really do think that that the only way we can see bishops maybe doing the things that you and i wish they would do is if an entirely new thing is made in which, you know, we, we call bishops to, to actions like that. Uh, otherwise, we're just going to get what happened in 2019 all over again every yeah. single time, which is the Council of Bishops living uh, uh, seem to be living in a world separate from reality in which they say this will be a really simple and easy uh a conference. We'll all vote for the one church plan and we'll move on. Meanwhile, anybody who's doing any kind of digging already knows that the one church plan is dead hmm. and that the traditionalists were absolutely going to win. They were going to win from the beginning. And and as, as almost every bishop stood up in support of the one church plan, and I realized, oh, these poor people have no idea what's going on. And, and not only do they have no idea what's going on, they don't even have the institutional power to change it. Hmm. That's mm-hmm. why for me, like, like I don't mind, like I'm anti-institutional, not because I think institutions suck. Like I like institutions. I, I don't mind being a part of them and, and, and like being, being with them to a degree. I, I just happen to think that this particular institution is under judgment and has run its course. And I think that's okay. I'm sorry I hijacked the conversation. No, I'm actually, I'll just try to say very quickly, the biggest thing that I wish is that that clip of Ethan just sort of unpacking his experience of Episcopal leadership, I wish that that could be sent to our bishops and their work would just be to listen to it and to just not, res- not do a response, just to listen to what Ethan just said. Mm. And I imagine that there are bishops they are like, I do that all the time. I'm always listening to criticism. And I, I'm with you. Um, I do wonder if we're listening to criticism to respond, which we feel like that's what you're supposed to do. But I'm saying like, just take what Ethan just said and just sit with it. Yeah. And not, not give a response, just, this is what it is and to internally think through and pray through what is what is a faithful response to what was not verbal response not immediate like back and forth like just sitting with that thought because part of it is i do wonder if now i'm going to make a broad statement about clergy love you all I do wonder at times if clergy really believe that the preaching is doing all the heavy lifting. And oh, there's theology that, that, that backs that up, that the preaching does the heavy lifting. But I think that's why we have 
clergy and leaders and, and bishops even that roll in to conferences and into meetings and even on podcasts with this framing because the the training is let the let the words do the heavy lifting when what we really do need is what you actually said ethan we need executive leadership right now we don't really need rhetoric rhetoric's helpful to get us like in the room but then what so like if this is a restoration and i deeply love Bishop Oliveto. And and I would agree with her that the United Methodist Church is in a reformation. I actually wonder if actually Ethan, we, it is, the denomination has been sort of destroyed. Um, that that did, that is and has mm-hmm. happened. And what we are now doing, some of us, not all of us are rebuilding after it's been destroyed. Like it's just not been destroyed in like this one neat bomb that dropped. Mm-hmm. Like it's sure. been, destroyed brick by brick, if you will. Yep, yep. But let's say that, let's say that Bishop Oliveto is correct, that we are in a reformation. And so how now do we lead differently and act differently and speak differently? Like, and with Bishop Oliveto being the first person, what do you do differently with Mm -hmm. your Mondays? Because we're in a reformation. Right. Uh, absolutely. I, oh gosh, this makes me, I, I have both feelings and thoughts and uh, weirdly like this little bubble of hope because like, yeah, no bishops, tell me what you are doing differently if we are in a reformation. Mm-hmm. Tell me what, what action of reformation is happening, right? Yeah, like yeah. we don't need to be puzzled about it. Let's be intent about it. Let's be thoughtful and intentional about it. How often have I heard from a bishop to be intentional about ministry and intentional about what you're doing? Bishops do that for like, do that as well. You don't have to do it mm-hmm. for us. Do that as well. I I wonder if bishops get, have the, um, maybe get the worst possible church analogy where like, you know how the pastor, there are some churches that are so big that the pastor only talks to like those 10 people who need to get the pastor's attention, mm-hmm. you know? Do bishops end up with that, that bishops only talk to the hundred people who are getting the bishop's attention? And does that mean that they are just not seeing that, like, there's a big chunk of us, like, Ethan and I are not alone in being disillusioned with the denomination. Mm -hmm. We are not alone with, like, calling for better leadership. And, like... how are they not hearing this because it's out here and I think it's uh, part of it is that they're hearing the people who are sharing that same different world that they're living in where the denomination is continuing rather than you know like maybe one of the last nails in the coffin was general conference 2019 and then we all stood there not realizing we were at a funeral you know I I think some of it actually is generational Mm. um uh, because I mean, you've got just a, a a way that a generation did leadership, and and who gets to have a seat at the table, and 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 you know, you're you have your advisors, and they 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 are hearing things where they're framing what they're hearing in a way that like fits into a larger narrative that they want you to pick up on, right? Like, there, I think that there is a generational and maybe even more corporate um, sort of way that we've always done it. And I think that that's actually being disrupted now because, I mean, things are happening, particularly in our church, but really across all of the sectors where you, no matter if, yeah, you might have your 10 people, 
but your 10 people have what used to be Twitter accounts and they're saying things and people are responding directly to them and retweeting and, and all of a sudden those 10 advisors are not coming in with as clean noses as they used to have and, and un, as unscathed as they used to be. Like there's so much chatter that leaders have to now wade through that mm. I would be shocked if bishops don't know some of this. I think what, what, our current leaders are having to work through is what does it mean to lead in a world where somebody could somebody on Facebook could literally put you on blast and everybody in your network knows about it. And this hasn't always been that way. Um, but I, so I think we're, there's a transition that's happening there. And that's also me giving sort of a positive, this is going to end well um, uh, <laughs> perspective. It may not end well, Um I, I think that what we have right now are particularly this class of, of Episcopal leaders. They are learning. I mean, gosh, yeah, they went into 2019 thinking that they had it. And they thought that they could easily dismiss the chatter that was saying you don't have it. And not only did they find out that they didn't have it, they literally weren't even ahead of the narrative. And that that's an existential crisis for a leader at that level. Yeah. And this isn't the only sector where that's happening, right? Like people really thought in 2016 that they knew who was going to get elected to be the president of the United States. Hmm. And when that didn't happen, that wasn't like bad intel. That was, y'all have no idea what world you live in. And so I do think that our, our leaders are getting that message that they are in a different world than we've been in. And the way that our, and I'll just say the way that my great grandmother would handle things is inspiring for me. I can't handle things that way. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I, that, that's not going to work because it's 2023. And I'm pretty sure that if my great grandmother was still here, she'd be like, yeah, we did that in 1970. We ain't doing that no more, baby. Um, <laughs> and so I, 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 and this is going to be the the leading edge for all of us that want to have a leading role in what the UMC becomes. We won't be able to lead the way we led before. Um, and people are going to hold us accountable on Facebook and Twitter. And that's going to mean something. They're not just going to hold us accountable at annual conference. They're going to hold us accountable at 10.30 p.m. via some some weird TikTok and we, and this is this is where I, I look at all of us as leaders. If we are not here to lead in this moment, put your hand down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is usually what Joe says. I know we're, we're approaching the end of the first episode, uh, <laughs> and we have time for a mini-sode. But uh, there's uh, one of the last continuing education events I went to as a pastor in my home conference in Pennsylvania uh, before uh, COVID happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, was an event um, on, that uh, the conference had hired somebody to come in and do like a little seminar on on the best ways to reach new people. And uh, I was there with, you know, uh, it was maybe 25 clergy people and about five or six of us were around my age. So mm-hmm. you know, at the time in my late 20s. And uh, this person has a very, had a very polished presentation. She clearly had done this many times before. And she said, 
um, the internet is a really great place to reach people because uh, on average, uh, people spend two to three hours a week surfing the web. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and uh, that's okay. That's what all six of us did too. Like we were like, what are you saying? <laughs> like two to three hours a week surfing the web? Friend. And and we did. Like each one of us in one form or another, like the millennial pastors there, we were like, I don't it I don't even know what you're talking about. Like it doesn't even we're we're so past that. Yeah. To even say how many hours a day are you on the internet is an outrageous statement to say. Some of us don't have cable. I am literally on the internet twenty four seven. Mm-hmm. You know during like, this interview. During dur- this interview. Right. <laughs> exactly. Like what are you talking about? And I think that that's a good illustration of what you're describing, Derek. Like some people are just not equipped to lead right now. And that's so okay. It is. It's, yeah. It's like, I'm never going to be equipped to do children's ministry. That's so okay. And so like, if, if, you're, if this is, if this is not it, like this is not the context that you feel like you've been gifted to lead in. I think we just need more honesty there. Um, mm-hmm. We're at the hour. And so I think this is probably like leaving this, this question of leadership here at the yeah. end of this first episode, I think is a good place. Cause if you can stick around for a mini stone, I would love to talk about the future of the UMC to talk about leadership in the UMC to talk about, um, how you have worked as a delegate and and also to talk kind of about how bar of the conference frames the conversation yeah. between 2019 and 2024 so if you're willing to stick around for that we'll do that in the mini if, if you want me i'm here yeah absolutely okay. well derek as we sign off thank you so much for being here i hope everybody goes and listens to bar of the conference i hope everybody got plenty from your story because there's just so much gosh there's so much heart to everything you shared it it, it makes it easy to to see why you'd want to stay oh well i'm i'm really grateful that y'all would invite me to be on the podcast um i just love i love what y'all do um, I love the conversation that you're cu- curating as well. And, and I think it's really, really um, needed uh, for all of us. So y'all are great. Thank you. You're pretty great too. Ethan, will you sign us off? I will. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan and Joe and Derek, and we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples Podcast Network. Our theme song is written by Joe Shomolf, performed by Joe Shomolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Find us across the social internet at WTHIAP, or visit us at WTHIAP.com to get connected to our Patreon, merch, playlists, and more. Thanks for listening, and share this with your bishop, friends. <laughs> <laughs>